You know, more and more, I am concerned and I'm convinced that the church today is in a bit of a crisis. It's a crisis. The crisis is many churches and many people in those churches have lost faith in the sufficiency of Scripture and the power of Scripture in the ability of Holy Scripture not only to save a soul, but even to sanctify a soul. See, I don't know exactly how many professing Christians even understand what the Bible is. That it's not just a piece of literature, but it is a portal to the very power and presence of God himself. That it's not just words on a page, but the means through which the living God mediates his power. I don't know. I don't know how many people in the church really actually believe that the word of God has the ability to solve the deepest dilemmas of the human soul. I don't know if many today believe that that every page And every word on that page just comes infused with the power of the living God. That the most stubborn sins and depression and fears and maladies of the soul can be dislodged and driven to their knees by the power of the text. I don't know how many believe that. But you see, the crisis that lack of confidence in scripture creates is that now the church no longer feels competent to counsel. Does that make sense? As confidence in the word wanes and decreases, so does the church's ability to help struggling people. Many people and and pastors feel ill-equipped, unprepared, inadequate to deal with the griefs and the pains and the struggles and the tangled complexities of the human heart. And therefore they just don't, they just don't deal with them. Now people believe that the only help for struggling people is to send them to a professional, to a specialist, to a therapist, to a psychologist. See my fear beloved is we've become too pragmatic too utilitarian in our day, even in the church. What I mean is we start to buy the sales pitch from the culture that pills and pop psychology have the corner on real life change and transformation. Just just reading the Bible, they say, is not sufficient for the dilemmas of the 21st century soul. And for some reason, we begin to agree with them. But you see, beloved, We will not bow. We must not bow because all the pleasure and all the power we need for life change and transformation is is found precisely in and through the living and abiding word of God. And the reason why I'm telling you that is because that was precisely the conviction of the prophet Isaiah. Because if there is anyone... If there was anyone that had a hurting congregation, it was Isaiah the prophet. If there was anyone 
who had to walk with his people down the deepest, darkest paths of their lives and minister the word of God to crushed and even disobedient people. It was Isaiah, son of Amotz. Because you understand, Isaiah wasn't just a prophet or a theologian. He was a physician of the soul, a shepherd, like a, like a pastor, even a biblical counselor, and the instrument that he uses both to break and to mend, both to cut and to heal his people is the living and active word of God. And yet the funny thing, the funny thing about Isaiah's audience, congregation, get this, is that they were not even a people yet in existence. They weren't even born yet. At least not the people he's addressing in chapters 40 through 66. Because you understand in those chapters, Isaiah makes really clear that he is not addressing the people of his own day, but a future generation of Jews yet to be born. Because where they were was 120 years in the future, 2,000 miles away in Babylon in exile. I say in chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah is talking to them, which is pretty astonishing, isn't it? Because what do you say to those people? What can you say to a people ripped from their home and living in the squalor of Babylonian slums? What you say to them is chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh my people, says your God. That's what you say to them. That's what you say to a people of faded hope and grim despair. Comfort, take comfort, be comforted, oh my people, says your God. And you see, it's the rest of the chapter all the way through the end of the book in chapter 66 where Isaiah provides all the reasons why we should and must have comfort. And what Isaiah uses to comfort them is nothing less than theology. (laughs) Not just theology, but a kind of theology so staggering in its vision of God, so staggering in its vision of the future, so staggering in its vision of the Messiah that should our greatest fears imaginable come upon us, our faith remains profoundly unshaken. Isaiah did not... He did not lack the confidence in the truth that many people have today. You see, for him, theology was the therapy. For him, meditation on the truth was the medication for the soul. And our text this morning is really important. It's really, really important because in the first 11 verses, get a load of what Isaiah does. What he gives us in these opening verses, get this, is a condensed chronological display of end times events. In other words, it's the the entire book of Revelation crammed into 11 verses because that's what you give to hurting people and discouraged people and anxious people and fearful people and lost people to win them to repentance, namely a glorious portrayal of how the world is gonna end. So here we go. Here we go, this morning I want you to see four end times events. Four end times events that bring comfort to the soul in an age of of danger and fear. That's where we're going. 
before end times events that bring comfort to the soul. You need that. You want that. And we need that in an age of danger and fear. And so the first end times event is this. Number one, wars ended and sins forgiven. Wars ended and sins forgiven. As in wars will end and sins will be forgiven. That is the future for the people of Israel, mind you. The question is, how do we know? How do we actually know that chapters 40 through 66, that Isaiah is really truly talking to a, a generation of people yet to be born? How do we actually know that is the case? Well, we know that because again and again, Isaiah says things that does not apply to the people of his own day. Things strange and, and irrelevant that didn't fit the situation of his generation. For instance, in chapter 45, he records the complaints of the people living in exile. Well, that's funny because they weren't in exile in Isaiah's day. In chapters 43, 46, 49, Isaiah gives these scattered details about life in Babylon. Well, that's funny because they weren't in Babylon in Isaiah's day. Yet... In chapter 44, Isaiah describes Jerusalem as empty of people and lying in ruins. Well, that's funny because that was not the state of the city in Isaiah's day. In chapters 47, 49, and 51, he describes his people as under the yoke and prison of Babylon, which was still over a century away. And so it's incredible. And yet it makes total sense, doesn't it? It makes total sense that Isaiah in 40 through 66 would be talking to a people in a future ba Babylonian exile, 120 years in the future, because you remember how chapter 39 ends, don't you? It ends with a prediction of exile into Babylon. You remember the scene? It was sad and tragic. Ambassadors from Babylon come offering Hezekiah a deal to join forces, to, to form an alliance. You watch my back and I'll watch yours. And for just a, just a small monthly fee, I will protect your country from the big bad meanies of the world that want to hurt you. And astonishingly, Hezekiah agrees which is just ridiculous. It's preposterous. I mean, did he learn nothing from his father Ahaz who did the same thing with the Assyrians? Is he to trust another nation to protect you instead of Yahweh alone was a formal violation of the covenant. And yet what it really was, was a lapse in faith. And what this lapse of faith would result in was the invasion of Babylon and the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at chapter 39 verses six and seven. Behold, the days are coming when everything which is in your house or palace and which your fathers have stored in this day will be taken to Babylon. There will not be one thing left, says Yahweh. And even from your own sons who come forth from you, of whom you became the father, they will be taken and they will become princes, servants, in the palace of the king of Babylon. You have to appreciate just how devastating that really is. I mean, that is hopeless. 
There's, there's no way to recover from that because what Babylon was going to do was invade them and plunder them and murder them and torch their cities to the ground and, and take the people captive as slaves. You understand when that happened to a nation in that day, they did not recover. You go out of extinction, out of existence. You go extinct because of exile. And you understand if that happened to the people of Judah, Every promise that God ever made to his people, including the promise of a kingdom and a Messiah, hangs in the balance. So if you're one of those future people, rotting in Babylon, you're probably thinking, what does this mean for us? Did we sin too much? Did we take things too far? Did we push God too much? I mean, I know we deserve this. I mean, I know we had this coming. We had ample time to repent and flee from sin and crush our idols. I know we had this coming, but what does this mean for us? Did God change his mind? Did he revoke the promises? Did he cancel the covenants? What does God have to say to us now that we're here and Jerusalem is in ruins and the temple is gone and what they did not know was that 120 years before they ever asked those questions Isaiah had already given the answer and the answer is chapter 40 verse 1 comfort comfort oh my people says your God speak literally to the heart of Jerusalem and call to her because her warfare has ended. Her iniquity is pardoned because she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. That is God's answer to what seemed like irreversible damage. Comfort, oh my people, comfort. Be comforted. Take comfort, oh my people. And then you understand verse two through, the, through verse 11 all the reasons why they could and should have comfort. And I want you to notice something there. I want you to notice the pronouns, my people, your God, my people, your God. Do you see that? That's incredible. So much theology crammed into the words, my and your, because you understand that is tender covenantal language. That's the language of the covenants. Again and again, throughout redemptive history, God repeated to his people that the point of the covenants is that they would be his people and he would be their God. It's personal. It's affectionate. It's loving. And it's tender. A sacred marriage between Yahweh and his people. And the point of the pronouns is the marriage is still on. The kingdom was still on. The plan was still on. The covenants were still good. Every promise that God ever made to his people would be fully and finally fulfilled. Because you realize, don't you, that all true comfort in life is eschatological comfort. In other words, if God is not going to fulfill his glorious future that he promised to his people, it is not comfort at all. And you understand this right here, this comfort here, this is eschatological comfort. This is eschatology. How do we know that? Well, isn't it interesting to you that every time Isaiah uses that word comfort, without exception, he uses it in contexts of eschatology. 
what God has planned for the end of the age. He's talking about the future here. How do we know this? We know this because in verses 2 through 11, he spells out the grand future realities that would bring them comfort. And there are three comfort-giving realities there in verse 2. Look at the text. Yahweh says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call to her and say what exactly? What do you say to those people? Well, you say that her warfare has ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. That's what you tell them. And I know your version says speak kindly or tenderly to Jerusalem. And that's fine. But the Hebrew actually says speak to her heart. Meaning inject this comfort into her soul at the deepest possible level. This is not superficial or shallow comfort here. This is profoundly supernatural, which means all this is here is an Old Testament way to say, speak the truth in love. That's what this is. To comfort one another. To exhort one another to encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. Because think about it. Who is Yahweh talking to? He's telling someone to speak to the people of Jerusalem. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the remnant of his people in the future, in Babylon, isn't he? He's talking to the few remaining godly Israelites who still gave a rip about God amidst a crooked and perverse generation of make-believers who now suffer in the slums of Babylon. And when he says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem, he means people speak to former residents of Jerusalem. Ripped from their homes, shackled and chained and shipped to Babylon. Like livestock in a cattle car, speak to them, he says. Which means what verse 2 is, is a call to ministry. It's a call to ministry, a truth-speaking ministry. This is God, think about this, this is God calling his future people yet to be born to comfort one another's souls with theology, and in particular, eschatology. And you understand, don't you? That is exactly your ministry to one another. To speak truth. To bring Christ-exalting comfort to the souls of other people. You understand, beloved, your most vital ministry in this church is the one that comes without a title. And it's this. It's this. To mediate the very comfort of Christ, not through opinions and cliches, but through the proclamation of the truth, and in particular, eschatological truth. Every Sunday, and every small group, and every conversation that you have with another believer, you must be armed with a mentality, which is, where is my chance? To speak the truth. Where is my opportunity to bring comfort to the soul? In what ways can I make Jesus Christ tangible to this person and reinforce their heart with the bulletproof steel of hope and faith? The question is, is that those are the questions you ask? 
Is that your mentality? Because you realize, of course, to be a comfort speaker, you have to know the things that actually bring comfort. And what brings comfort to the soul is eschatology. And it is exactly what Isaiah gives. Three comfort-giving realities that are coming in the future. Number one. Number one, look at verse two. Tell Jerusalem that her warfare is ended. Which, think about it. At the time, it wasn't true. And it's still not true true to this very day. And yet one day it will be true. When Jesus Christ returns as a conquering king at the end of the age, he will slaughter the forces of evil upon the earth and usher in a golden age of peace the world has never seen since before the fall. That brings comfort to the soul, does it not? Number two, number two, tell Jerusalem that her iniquity is pardoned. That her sin is forgiven, which in that day wasn't true. And for a vast majority of Jews today is still not true. And yet one day it will be true. Why? Because in a glorious plot twist in the hell on earth that is the tribulation, the people of Israel will begin to turn. After so viciously scorning the one who came to save them, the chosen seed of Israel's race will embrace and believe in their Messiah who took the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. And that is what gives comfort to the soul, the crucified and risen redeemer. Number three, tell Jerusalem that she has received double for all her sins. Not double the punishment, but double the grace to cover all her sins, which at the time wasn't true. And it is still not true. And yet one day it will be true at the end of the age when God drowns their sin in an ocean of reconciling blood. Because where sin abounds and where wrath abounds and where guilt abounds and where slavery abounds the grace of God abounds all the more. And beloved, although you are not Israel, the comfort offered to them is the very comfort that you already possess by faith in Jesus Christ. End times event number two. Number two, a highway built, the glory of God revealed. As in, a highway will be built and the glory of God will be Revealed because you have to understand, beloved, this is very important. Is that one of the dramatic events that's going to happen at the end of the age? Listen carefully is a new and better exodus. A new and better exodus, like the first, but better than the first. The prophets are really, really clear about this. The original exodus out of Egypt was but a sample and a preview of a later, greater exodus at the end of time that would put the first exodus to absolute shame. And the reason why is because he would not just save his people out of Egypt, but from all the nations in the earth in which they are currently scattered at this moment in sin and unbelief. And we see the exodus there in verses three through five, look at the text. A voice is crying in the wilderness. 
Turn on the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the wilderness a highway. I'm going to say this to our God. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be laid low. And the jagged terrain will become smooth. And the rugged lands a valley plain. And the glory of Yahweh will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now there's a lot going on there. And it's a little cryptic, I admit, but I think you can tell this is a future scene at the end of history. And notice, notice very carefully, verse 5, God himself will arrive to the earth. In literal, physical form, God will show up to the planet and reveal his glory. That's what verse 5 means. And the glory of Yahweh will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. This is everywhere in Isaiah and the prophets. God will appear on the earth. In chapter 2, 19, 24, 33, and chapter 35 says that Yahweh himself will reign from Jerusalem, as in the literal city of Jerusalem on this planet. Is that too hard to believe? God himself will arrive and claim the planet that rightfully belongs to him. And we know this to be none other than Jesus Christ himself. Titus 2.13 is clear that we are awaiting, are we not? The glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is him in verse 5. And yet you notice after his arrival, he will send out a summons throughout the earth to bring his people home. Look at verse 3. A voice is crying in the wilderness. Turn on the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the wilderness a highway to our God. Can you see what is happening? Can you see it? This is a call to build something. To build what? Notice a road and a highway to God. I, I think this is literally the construction of an eschatological superhighway that takes the people straight to Jerusalem to see the glory of God. In other words, this is the exodus. This is the later greater exodus to happen at the end of the age. It is a summons, you understand, a summons for the Jews to make their home, way home to Zion to see the glory of their king. Look at verse 3 again. I know your version says, clear the way for the Lord or prepare the way for the Lord, but Hebrew poetry uses parallelisms. The word way is parallel with highway. This is a road, an actual road. I don't think that this is a metaphorical call for repentance, but an actual summons to build a literal freeway leading to Jerusalem. And the reason I say that is because I think the language demands it. And because three times Isaiah talked about this freeway. In chapter 11, in the context of the Messiah's future kingdom, he says there's a freeway leading to the king for scattered Jews to come home. In chapter 35, in the context of the future kingdom, he says this, and there will be a freeway and a road, and it will be called the highway of holiness. Get this, and the redeemed of Yahweh will return on it. 
And they will come to Zion with joy and eternal joy on their heads. Rejoicing and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee. And you see, here in chapter 40, verse 3, is the call to build that freeway. This eschatological interstate, this exodus superhighway by which repentant Jews from all over the world come back home to, to Zion to see the splendor of the king. Don't you see, it's not a highway for our God. It's a highway to our God. It's exactly what God is describing in Ezekiel 36. Do you remember? When he says, I will take you, Israel. I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the lands and I will bring you into your own land. That's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. And you understand when that happens, the covenants will be fulfilled. They will live in the land that God had promised They'll be restored to the role that God intended. He will keep every single promise he ever made to his people, Israel. And the reason why that matters to you is not because you are Israel, but because it has to do with the character of God. What I mean is, if God could elect Israel and make sovereign, unconditional promises to them and swear on his own character that he will keep those promises and yet fail to keep those promises, we have zero guarantee that he will keep his promises to us. But if God, or should I say, when God intervenes in a future global exodus and brings his people home from the ends of the earth to see the splendor of their king, then we know that our own election is secure. Promises made, promises kept, and the best is yet to come. And what's so astonishing about verse 3, and you notice this, is that John the Baptist quoted that verse again and again, didn't he? It's interesting. And he applied it to himself. In other words, he was the voice crying in the wilderness. Verse 3 is the voice of John the Baptist himself. Isn't it profound and mysterious that anytime anyone asked John his name or why he was doing what he was doing or where he got the authority to preach and to baptize that every time the answer was the same. I am that voice crying in the wilderness. Turn on the road of Yahweh, make straight the highway to our God. What did he mean? Not that the exodus was happening in his own day necessarily, but that the Messiah who would bring about that exodus had finally arrived. You understand the job of John the Baptist was to prepare unrepentant Israelites to embrace the Messiah who would bring about a later, greater exodus into the kingdom at the end of the age. And yet, maybe you felt this way, the exodus at the end of the age doesn't seem that exciting, does it? It doesn't seem very supernatural to build a freeway. I mean, that's boring. The first exodus was way more exciting than this. And yet, did you notice how the freeway would be made? Verse 4. Every valley will be lifted up. 
and every mountain and hill will be laid low and the the jagged terrain will become smooth and the rugged lands of valley plain. I mean, did you see what, what is predicted here? Not just the parting of a sea, but the moving of entire mountains. I take it literally. And so should you, you should too. I mean, after all, Isaiah 11, Zechariah 14 and Revelation 16 all describe cataclysmic geographical transformations where plains become mountains and mountains become plains. If you want to fight for that and make that symbolical language, well, the burden of proof is on you. Yahweh will literally alter the landscape of the planet to form an eschatological super freeway to ensure swift and easy passage for his people to return home. Just like at the Red Sea, he will clear a path and the prodigal sons will come home. And if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, you will be there to watch it go down. Look at verse 5. And the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. I believe this to be Christ himself, don't you? Ruling on a throne, reigning in majesty, building his kingdom. And yet you notice all flesh will see it. Meaning what? All flesh is people. This is people. This is the redeemed we're talking about. And what that does is raise the question, beloved. Are you among the all? Are you included in the all flesh that will see this go down at the end of the age? Will you be there in the kingdom is what I'm asking you. Because you remember, you remember what Christ said to Nicodemus, didn't you? That unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So my question is, have you, have you been bought with the blood of the lamb and born again? Have you truly yielded to the king in repentance and faith? Because before it's too late, and I'm serious, before it's too late, before your heart becomes hardened by the deceitful pleasures of sin, the time is now to despair in your worthless works to save you and cast yourself on the lamb who was slain. End times event number three. Number three, the grass withers, the word endures, the grass withers, the word endures. And in all fairness, this is not actually an end times event, but what it is is a parenthesis of encouragement. In other words, listen to this. Isaiah is going to teach us how to minister to a discouraged people suffering with despair. He's going to teach us how to do this. He's going to disciple us on how to do this. Because those future people to whom Isaiah was writing would be in despair. And yet the question is, what do you say to those people? What would you say? What does a husband say to his wife, freshly torn from home and dumped in the slums? What does a father say to his children as they weep together in the ghettos of Babylon? What do you say to a people 
whose fragile faith hangs by a slender thread and it is just about to break. What do you say to them? You say this, the word of our God endures forever. That's what you say. That's what you say to a people of faded hope and grim despair. The word of our God endures for, uh, forever. In other words, to truly bring comfort to, holy, holy, uh, to, to hurting people, you have to extol the supernatural qualities of the word of God. In other words, to bring comfort and joy and hope to hurting people, you have to tell them what the scripture is and you have to tell them what the scripture says. And we know that because that's exactly what Isaiah says to do. Look at verses six through eight. What you're about to see here is a theoretical dialogue between Yahweh and a person in exile. And notice in verse six, there's a voice that speaks. I think that's God's voice. See that? And who he's talking to is, as it were, a soul suffering in exile. So does that make sense? There's a dialogue here between God and a person in exile. And notice, God commands the person to do what? To call out. Call out, he says. And I know your version might say, I said, or, but, but it's third person singular, he. This voice calls out. It, it's God calling. Call out. In other words, I want you to preach. I want you to proclaim. I want you to declare a message to hurting people, which the voice in reply says, what do I say? What, what can I say to a hopeless people who just got their faith ran over by a truck? What do I say to those people? And the answer, so radically different from anything probably anyone would say today, is found in verses 6 through 8. Look at the text. Here's what you say to them. All flesh is grass. And all its loyalty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls off. For the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Truly the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off. But the word of our God endures forever. That is the message. That is what you say. To hurting people. That the word of our God endures forever. Look what he says. All flesh is grass. And all their loyalty like the flower of the field. By flesh he means people. Doesn't he? People. And notice. All flesh. All people. Without exception. Are grass. Meaning what? Meaning that all we are at our best. On our own. Is fragile. Feeble fallible, fleeting, and fallen. That's it. There's nothing in us. There's nothing about us to which we can cling to truly have hope, is there? All we are are human vats of weakness. All we are are human receptacles of need. All we have to offer God is helpless dependence and reliance upon his grace. That is it. And not only are we weak, but we are corrupt and we can't be trusted. Look at verse six, all there, all our loyalty is like the flower of the field. And I know your version says loveliness or beauty, but the word there in Hebrew is chesed. 
Chesed. It means faithfulness. It means dependability. It means loyalty. And his point is, is that our trustworthiness, get this now, our internal character as people is like a flower that fades in the field. Meaning what? Meaning. We are quick to break our word. We are quick to be corrupted. We are quick to compromise. We are quick to break our promises. We are sinful. We are fallen. We are corrupt. We lack the inner qualities that make us trustworthy and dependable. And then in verse 7, Yahweh doubles down on the metaphor. Look what he says. The grass withers, the flower falls off, for the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Truly the people are grass. What does he mean by that? The grass withers, the flower falls off. What does he mean? You know exactly what he means. People die. And they die precisely because the breath of Yahweh blows upon them. You understand that that's, a langu- that's the language of God's power. That, that's even the language of God's judgment. Isaiah is literally saying that people die and disappear, not just because that's what people do, but because God is the one who removes them out of existence. He appointed the day of our birth. He decides the day when we die. I mean, do you see see the theology of man that Yahweh is giving to his people? Can you see it? Man is weak. Man is wicked. And man wilts and withers and dies. How is that helpful? How is that encouraging? Isaiah, are you sure that that's what you want to give to hurting people? Is that really what's helpful in moments of weakness to hear about our weakness? It is actually. That's really good for people to hear because you see what hurting people need and what everybody needs is to get this come to grips with our frailty our absolute spiritual bankruptcy that we're not sufficient in ourselves that we've got nothing in us that can sustain us for this life especially not the crises you think you have that in you you don't I mean, I don't care what new age spiritualism or self-esteem nonsense or the power of positive thinking says. All we are on our own by ourselves are fading flowers that wilt in the sun. And you see, Isaiah's point is, is that when we come to grips with our weakness, we will be forced to trust in something bigger than ourselves. In something powerful. In something lasting. In something eternal. In something enduring. In something perpetual. And and utterly transforming and supernatural. That which has the power not only to save a people, but to sanctify a people. And even satisfy the deepest longings of their souls. And the only thing that fits that description is the living and abiding word of God. Do you see? Look at verse 8. The grass withers. The flower falls off. Flower 
falls off, but the word of our God endures forever. That's the answer to the question of verse 6. What do I say to these people? Say this. The word of our God endures forever. Because I'll have you know that those kinds of people, struggling, hopeless, grieving, fearful, sad, angry, confused, anxious people, they're not just in Babylonian exile. They are among us. They are in this very room. And you might be one of them. And so the question is, how do you inject authentic hope into the souls of suffocating people, choking and gasping for relief? What do you say to a people of faded hope and grim despair? And what you say to them is, devar aloheinu yakum le'olam. The word of our God endures forever. That is what you say. To bring real, authentic hope to hurting people, we must say what the word is and we must say what the word says. This is not just a piece of literature, but a portal to the very power and presence of God himself. And you understand, look what he says. This is the word of our God, the word from our God. This is the doctrine of inspiration. The promise is made, the glory is revealed. Don't you see every page and every word on that page just comes infused with the power of the living God himself. People don't need cliches or, 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 or therapeutic advice to make them feel better about themselves. They need you to extol for them the supernatural qualities of the word of God. And notice, notice the word of our God endures forever. Interesting, as opposed to man who fades and wilts like flowers in the sun, the word of God is perpetual and, and powerful and dependable and eternally reliable. And if you don't believe that, you can't help hurting people. You can't. Don't you see the word of God is the only thing in existence in which we can let down our guard and fully trust in it without a shred of fear that everything that is promised will come to pass. God wants your whole dependence to be on the scriptures because the greater your dependence upon the scriptures, the greater your dependence on God himself the word of God is not just helpful, it is the help itself. Why? Because in it, God meets us with all the pleasure and power we need to live a life that puts him on display. And so your ministry, your ministry to one another is first to get this word absorbed into the bloodstream of your soul through sacred reading and, and holy contemplation and second to speak it into the lives of other people. That's your ministry. That's our job. To bring hope and joy and comfort and courage to one another's souls. We must say what the word is and we must say what the word says. 
And what it is is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what it says brings true joy and comfort and hope to the soul. Number four. End times event number four, and then we're done. The God arrives, the shepherd leads. The God arrives, the shepherd leads. And the God and the shepherd are one and the same person, and it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, because this is prophecy. And he will fulfill it in the end. He will arrive to earth as a God and king. And when he does, he will love and lead his people like a shepherd. And the scene there in verse 9 is just incredible. Verse 9 is this little vignette of what it will be like for the Jews when the Messiah comes home. Look at the text. He says, go up on a high mountain, you who bring good news, O Zion. In other words, Zion is the one bringing the good news. Do you see that? Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, you who brings good news. Rise up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God. Can you see what the scene portrays? I think there's a literal quality to the scene. You see, Revelation 12 makes clear that in the tribulation, the Jews will be in hiding from Satan and the Antichrist. I mean, you can imagine what this would be like in rocks and caves and cities underground. And the picture here, listen carefully, the picture here in verse 9 is just a little vignette. The picture here is that after the Messiah arrives and takes his seat on Jerusalem, a.k.a. in Zion, the citizens of Jerusalem search throughout the land. Shouting in caves, yelling on mountains, searching the cities, scouring the sewers, proclaiming good news at the top of their lungs. And the good news they proclaim is very simple, but it is very powerful. Look at the end of the verse. What is the, what is the message? Behold your God. That's the message. Behold your God. Your God what? Your God is magnificent. Your God is glorious. Your God is majestic. He is supreme. He is infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, unchangeable, unalterable, and sovereign. Your, your God reigns. Your God is here. Your God has arrived. He is here for you. He is enough for you. Behold, your God has come. And he will satisfy your deepest longings forever. I love that message, behold your God. Not only because, again, it's evidence, again, that Jesus is God. But that contained in those two Hebrew words is all the relief and the assurance and hope and courage and joy and comfort needed for the soul. Did you know that? Those two words. If you don't have anything to say, to hurting people, you can always say, behold your God. Think about what a, what a comfort this would be to the Jews in Babylon as they pass one another on the streets and in the marketplace. As dad leaves for the day to try to somehow earn a living for the family in this foreign land. As they eat a paltry meal together in a tiny apartment in the slums. 
Before they blow out a lamp at night, before they go to bed, they simply look one another right in the eyes and they whisper to one another the greatest declaration in the history of the world. Behold your God. Good night. Don't you see? This is the same message that we have to proclaim to one another. It's one and the same message. Don't you see in the face of pain and suffering and disease and death, what do we say to one another? Behold your God. When we're gripped by fear and the terrors of the unknown, what do you say? Behold your God. Overwhelmed by sin, discouraged by your failures, what do you say? Behold your God. Stressed by work, hopeless in your marriage, what do you say? Behold your God. Concerned about money and worried about your kids, what do you say? Behold your God. Tired of lies and sick of the corruption, what do you say? Behold your God will come and make all things right in the world. You get that, you will be competent to counsel. And speaking of Prophetic things, Isaiah closes the scene in verses 10 and 11, so go fast, but not insignificant with a gripping glimpse of what it will be like when the king of glory comes to reign. Look at verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord Yahweh will come with strength and his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his people. Do you see the juxtaposition there? Warrior, shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. I mean, you can see it, right? The progression of the scene. There's the return. There's the rain. There's the reward. And there's the rest. First, the return. Look at verse 10. The Lord, Yahweh, will come with strength. Jesus Christ will come with strength. And you know this, a sovereign, invincible power that cannot be resisted. Number two, there's the rain. The rain, verse 10. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, will come with strength and his arm ruling for him. Make no mistake. When Christ arrives, he will defeat, he will conquer, he will slaughter the forces of evil upon the earth, and he will take his rightful place as king and ruler of the planet. Number three, there's the reward. Verse 10. The Lord will come with strength and his reward will be with him and his recompense before him. Isn't it interesting to you that the Lord Jesus Christ said the exact same thing in Revelation twenty-two twelve? 12? Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to each according to his work. Reward for his people. Revenge for his enemies. Number four. There is the rest. Look at verse 11. When the king arrives, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. He will gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. You understand, this is our God, warrior, king, 
ruler, shepherd, and savior of our souls. The question is, do you know him? Do you know him? Have you come by faith and faith alone to the great high king and savior of men? Have you laid down the arms of rebellion and waved the white flag of surrender in repentance and faith? Have you done so? Have you yielded yourself to the satisfying custody of the Lord and King and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is both lamb slain and shepherd risen? who is both servant and he is king, who is both man and he is God. Because behold, he is coming quickly. And his reward is with him and his recompense is before him and he will give to each according to his work. Behold, your God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for substance. Thank you for real hope in the text. Powerful, heart invigorating, world shaping, perspective changing. Thank you for hope. Thank you that we can bank on this. And Lord, we all carry struggles of various degrees. We all have aches. We all have struggles, oh Lord, and and how those are fixed, how those are remedied is by holding fast to you and what you have spoken. Help us to do so, Lord. Help us to be people of radical hope and fearless faith. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray.